in our teaching today, we are kicking off a series in the Gospel of John. Now, we, uh, we haven't done a gospel in its entirety since we have been a church. We launched over seven years ago now. We did do about four and a half months in the Sermon on the Mount one time, walking through it, and we also did actually a couple New Year's Januarys ago a seven-part series of the I Am statements in John, but we have not walked through the entirety of the gospel, and partly because they are long books and they are long series. In fact, right now, I slated out just if we go straight through with the schedule we have right now, we will be in John until sometime in the beginning of August. Now, we might even be in it longer. We might bump that out because we've kind of left it open to ourselves because there's a couple teachings that could potentially bump into two teachings or, you know, expand out a little further. Or we might even say, hey, this might be another small series we want to break up this larger series with and insert in. We're just leaving that opportunity available to us. But as of now, we'll be in this through the winter, spring, summer, and almost back to school, possibly even into the next school year in the book of John because... We want to centered around the figure that we are centered around, which is the incarnate God-man, Jesus. A lot more that I can intro about a gospel, but we have kids in the room. We have, I have a lot to say on and I have less sleep than I normally do. So I want to jump in, and I'm going to let the book of John actually intro its own section, intro its own series introduction, because... Each gospel starts out in their own way of choice. Matthew starts out with a genealogy connecting Abraham all the way to Jesus, showing, hey, this is the God of the forefathers that is now coming into this plan. Or you get Mark, which Mark just jumps directly into the action. Mark is known as the gospel that's just like always, Jesus is on the move, it's the most action-packed, most movement, most verbs are used in the, word, in the uh, gospel of Mark. It's the shortest, most compact, and so he goes straight to, hey, here's the baptism of Jesus. Forget the birth, we're going straight here. And then Luke starts with a note to his benefactor who helped him write the book, was the one who gave him commissioning, and saying, hey, this is why and how I went about collecting and writing the stories of my gospel of Jesus. But John takes a unique approach in that he attempts to create a poetic introduction to his friend. We talked about when we went through 1 John this time last year. John walked with Jesus. He leans against him in the last night of Jesus' life while they're eating the Passover together. I mean, he had a deep, intimate understanding with what Jesus of Nazareth smelled like. He slept next to him for years. This was a deep, intimate friend. And now he has the confounding moment where he is now trying to describe, hey, this friend that I've intimately been acquainted with, he has convinced me that he is the God of the universe incarnate into flesh. Because he was not only his deep personal friend, but he also saw him do countless miraculous signs. 
healing person after person, casting demons out, walking upon water. He saw him defeat death. John, as he's observing Jesus, as he's walking with him over years, even at one point sees him transfigure into the glory of Yahweh and emanate the power of God, and not in its fullness, but in more than anyone had seen it to this point. And so he's trying to introduce a man who was born a working-class carpenter, and he becomes sought after as a healer and a rabbi, and then eventually becomes charged as an insurrectionist rebel and killed a criminal. But then it begins to be reported that Jesus of Nazareth is alive again. And many see him. And of course, his most, one of his most intimate friends, John, is no different than those who did see him. And so John, when he decides to sit down and write his account of his friend and his God, he doesn't write it until near the end of his life about 55 to 60-ish years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. But you realize when it comes out, I mean, not to mention, this must have been an account that a lot of people were pretty expectant to read of someone who knew him so well. And you realize that as it comes out and you start reading it, he had been maturing and developing his thoughts for almost six decades. And then sits down to try to create some sort of intro that would give you a bit of a glimpse of who he's going to talk about. Of what, who the person is who reshaped his view of who the God of his forefathers was what he came to do, what his plan and kingdom is, who his true enemy is. He shifted him from a sense of that a Messiah would come and give the Jews ability to form their own government and be free from political oppression and shifted it to believe that this God was coming so that all who would receive him would be born as his children. And in doing that, we get the prologue of John, and the poetic style that he uses is very much so like an overture. If you are familiar with music, symphonic or operatic music, or even a musical, a lot of times, before the curtain rises or the very first piece that is played is an overture, and an overture is meant to give you these seeds of musical themes that are going to be developed and played with and subverted and grown over the course of the work. And these seeds, it's almost like a capturing of the snapshot of all that will take place. And John very much so uses his beginning prologue as planting seeds that are going to mature and develop all throughout his book. But he also takes it a step further because John is not writing a first work or he doesn't see it that way. He sees himself as writing a continued work from the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. 
And so the seeds that he starts planting in the prologue are not just those who will develop and grow and become all the themes which he will be then orchestrating and creating harmonies with in his book, but he begins to harmonize those themes with a whole canon of Old Testament seeds that he says, hey, these seeds that were planted in Genesis, in Exodus, throughout the prophets, throughout the writings, throughout the wisdom literature are now having the moment where the seed actually breaks and explodes and begins to burst into life in the person and the life of Jesus of Nazareth. And so, as he does that, all the things, the Old Testament seeds, the seeds of what John will be talking about, they all start colliding together similar to the mashup of a song where all themes come together. And you probably, even if you're not very musical, just to bring it down, for the, I know we have musical people in here, I know we have very like non-musical people in here, so to bring it down to you, and maybe this won't hit you either because it's a very niche kids reference, but it's a lot like We Don't Talk About Bruno. Already referenced him once, let's go again. Uh, so the song We Don't Talk About Bruno, you get several themes, the first part of the song is just setting up different themes. So you get the first one of, it was our wedding day, we were getting ready, and there wasn't a cloud in the sky. And then we get a second theme a little bit later, where we have the favorite daughter comes out and says, he told me that the life of my dreams would be promised and someday be mine. And then after that, we get a third uh, theme from a, another member of the family who takes that theme and kind of plays with it and makes a new melody, and she goes, like, he told me that of my dream would be just out of reach, betrothed to another. And then we get the money theme that ties it all together, talking about the Bruno, uh, Bruno himself, and it's like the seven-foot frame rats along his back when he sees your name, it all fades to black, and whatever. And so then after you set up all those themes throughout the first half of the song, the end of the song is all of those themes woven together and crashing into each other and to the point where they all harmonize and they play off each other. And you can't even tell all of them from one another because they blend into it was our wedding day and seven foot frame and it was a man of my dream and all the things coming together, which is a bit of what John is doing in 1 through 18. So... In order to give you an appreciation for all those themes, let me just take the rest of our time to tease out some of the major ones, though I cannot and will not get to them all. And so, in our structure, to begin, <clears throat> you get four poetic lines that we just read in the first two verses. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. There's our intro. These four lines you can see create a keyism, as we've talked about before, which is here is a line, the last line correlates with, or the first line correlates with the last line, the next line correlates with the next line. If it goes on, they kind of go inward until you get the center line. However, this is just four, so you get the last line and the first line correlate each other, which is actually pretty easy to see. In the beginning was the word, is the first line. Last line is he was in the beginning with God, very clearly correlating together. In the middle, what it's pointing to in a more important way is always what is found in the middle. And so in the middle, you get, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And 
As John sits for almost six decades thinking about how am I going to introduce this person to everyone for church history, past and future, to them, for them to forever meditate on and know. The first thing he thinks of to say, hey, who is this? It's not introducing by a really person concept at all, but rather he says, he's the word. Now, when he's choosing the word and also by the very first line of this text, it probably seemed extremely familiar to you because it reflects the creation story of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And here we have, in the beginning was the word. And the word itself is referring to how when God creates, God doesn't create by getting his hands dirty because he doesn't have to. He has enough power that he speaks and things come into creation that were never there present or before. And not only that, not only is it the idea of God's power and his ability to speak and create, it's also the fact that the word to speak is the same word for God's breath, which is the same word for spirit. And we've talked about this before. In fact, Satchel taught on this a few weeks ago in the midst of the Advent series when we taught on the spirit, that ruach, the word ruach, is to mean someone's breath, someone's spirit, someone's words. And so when God's words and his breath, his spirit come out of his mouth, life and creation burst forth. It's not just, though, a Hebrew concept that John's touching on. He's also touching on a Greek concept because he's writing in Greek, and he chooses the word logos. And logos, or logos, is the same word that we derive logic from. Because for the Greeks, the Stoics, the philosophers, they had this concept of the logos. The creative power that was in and holding all things together. It was logical order of things. And so the way that the seasons flow from spring to summer to fall to winter back to spring and life comes in the spring and it flourishes in the summer and it fades and dies slowly and then becomes desolate in order to be reborn after winter back in the spring was a part of the logos, this creative power. It was also just the wisdom of what it was to interact with the world rightly. And so if you were one who practiced wisdom, if you practiced hard work and not laziness, like sleeping in and not coming on New Year's Eve for those who are watching online, um, and you don't, you know, value incarnate community, that's fine, whatevs. Um, I'm joking, joking, happy new year. Um, regardless, uh, those who are, what, are operating in wisdom are going to be operating in the logos. In this concept of the Greek logos, John's touching on, yes, hey, here's the word, the spirit of God that creates. Here is the logos, the way that all life is held together to you Greeks, but it actually also shows up in Proverbs 8. You can flip there. I don't have it on the screen. You can either flip there or listen. Proverbs 8, verses 22 through 31. The entirety of Proverbs 8 is talking about lady wisdom, uh, this concept of imper uh, impersonating or, or um, personifying the concept of wisdom, much like the Logos. In fact, you read it here in verse 22. It says, the Lord, this is lady wisdom talking, the Lord brought me forth as the first of his works before his deeds of old. I was formed long uh, ages ago. At the very beginning, 
when the world came to be, when there were no watery depths, I was given birth. There were no springs overflowing with water before the mountains were settled in place, before the hills I was given birth, before he made the world or its fields or any of the dust of the earth. I was there when he set the heavens in place, when he marked out the horizons on the face of the deep, when he established the clouds above and fixed securely the fountains of the deep, when he gave the sea its boundaries so the waters would not overlap his command, and when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was constantly at his side. I was filled with delight day after day, rejoicing always in his presence, rejoicing in the whole world and delighting in mankind. Proverbs 8 is talking about this concept of lady wisdom, which the Hebrews knew well of when God created, he had wisdom delighting and rejoicing in the goodness of the way that he made all things with life and flourishing. And John is tapping into that idea. Hey, you know that idea of who this lady wisdom is? That's not exactly who we're talking about because this person is not born, was not created, but it's like that concept. This person that I'm talking about is the spirit of life that breathes and brings creation. It's the logos of how to interact wisely with the world. It's the lady wisdom at the side of the father who is rejoicing as God creates goodness and beauty and all things to work well. That concept is taken further in John 3 through 5. It says just what we've been talking about here. John 1, 3. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So, this theme of the word and the wisdom and the logos, which, again, you could have heard all in that first concept of he is the word, but then John fleshes it out for you a bit more, crashes into this idea of the creative light, that when God, first thing he says in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and he said, let there be light, and there was light, and light crashes out and starts to push back darkness. Because as we've said before, creation isn't just this idea that there was vast nothingness, but rather the Genesis story talks about darkness and disorder and chaos, and God comes and he takes darkness and creates light. He takes disorder and he creates order. He takes chaos and he makes beauty. And so this idea of Jesus being the creative light is the next theme that starts crashing in, which we'll come back to in a second, because I also want to go back to real quick about the idea of at the beginning of the, the first four lines, what we talked about in the middle of the chiasm of the word was with God and the word was God is a very key point and almost sounds like a contradiction in our language. It's confusing. But it's John trying to ask you to think creatively differently about how you view reality. And it's actually maybe a little bit understandable if you think of it like this. When I speak, when I speak my inner thoughts, when I reveal parts of who I am, my words 
are very much so a part of me. They're a part of who I am. They are part of all that it is to be Kent. In fact, my words go out into the world and they create and they do. I, I think of it in this way. My sons right now are getting to these ages, particularly our oldest, Judah, that, you know, he's in third grade, which is like third grade is like the grade of epiphany of just like, I am a social being and other people are social beings. And there are two genders in this social construct of the life that we have. And all these things start to like start in flooding into their brain. And you can see they start to like place themselves in the world. And it's a very identity shaping year for them. And you can see him start to wrestle with, hey, I'm good at some things and I'm not good at these things. And he's starting to get some of those adult thoughts, but he also still very much so is attached to the childishness of everything is all good or all bad. And so when he's all good, he always will regularly say, this is the best day ever. This is the best. He said, this was the best Christmas morning yet. This last thing, uh, Halloween was the best Halloween ever, which only topped the previous Halloween, which was the best Halloween ever. But when he all of a sudden realizes that he's not good at things, then he's, I am terrible. I am horrible. I'm not good at anything. And often I have found those times, Sharon and I both, we stop him and say, hey, you are good. You are wonderful at, look at these things that you're good at. Look at these things that even if you weren't good at that, regardless, you're my son and I love you. And sometimes they just bounce off. But over time, over saying these things, over giving him identity markers again and again, you see him absorb it more and more because my words communicate him. And my words are a part of me, but they also are distinct from me. And that's a bit of what John's getting at when he says, hey, this person that was with God, this word, this logos, this wisdom, this creative spirit that was with God is distinct from God. He was with him. He was near him at his side. But he also was God. There's a part where he and the God that we worship overlap. It's just a different way of viewing reality that breaks from a linear logic that we're very used to and comfortable with. And then John 1 is going to go and it's going to talk about this man came who was John, which this is not the author John referring to himself in the third person as Kent can sometimes do, but rather this is John referring to John the Baptist who is going to come as a witness testifying. And we're going to come back to John in a couple weeks I can't go deeply into that because after that you get another section of verse 9. The one true light which gives light to everyone who is coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. We're going to come back to this, but just for now, keep reading. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have His glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about who I said, He comes after me, ranks before me, because He was before me. And from all this fullness, we have received grace upon grace. Now, pause here, because as you're reading it, if you're reading it 
astutely, you start to realize, we just read all this. We read that he was the word that was there at the beginning that comes in the world, and John is going to testify about him, and then there's those who receive him and those who reject him, and now he's the word that comes into flesh and dwells amongst us, and John's going to testify about him, and we have received him and received life. And you're like, we're doing the same thing twice over. But again, this is poetry. And poetry often is going to repeat themes, expand upon them. And the way that you would structure this, I'll try to do this somewhat kind of visually here as well as describe it orally, is that you had those first four lines that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was with God in the beginning. Those are an introduction. Then you get six strophes. Strophes are a line of poetry or the lines of poetry that form together. So you get your six strophes after your four introductory verses, and then you get a single concluding verse, which is actually inconclusive. We'll talk about that here in a moment. And so you have four uh, lines as the intro, six strophes of poetry, and you're concluding about no one has seen the Father, but he who is near the Father has made him known. And in those six trophies, you get the Word was God, uh, or we say that the Word was this creative life that brought light to men, and so you get the creative light coming into the world. Then you get John testifying about him. Then you get a highlighting of what it looks like to receive or reject him. Then you come back and you get a new version of the light, this time the light as the tabernacle, not from Genesis but from Exodus. Then you get a replaying of, as well as a deepening of what did John testify about? If you notice, the first time it says John testified, it never says what he said. If you're again reading along, be like, what did John say about him? Well, this time you find out, hey, he who came before me was, or came after me was actually before me because he was before me. And then you get this time another highlighting of them uh, receiving, but it talks about how it wasn't just people out there who rejected him, who he came to his own, and that there would be those random people who would receive him, but we received him. We received life. And I want to tell you exactly about the life that we received. And in our second set of strophies, in comparison to the creative light that brings life to everyone and creation and power and wisdom, you get then the light that was made flesh and dwells with us, which, as I said, was from Exodus in its tabernacle language. Because from the moment of the Garden of Eden that God dwells with man and woman, he walks with them in the cool of the day. And then as he does that, they break relationship with him by entering sin and entering death and choosing to be their own God and to find a good and bad for themselves. And so then you have this long, drawn-out story, which is the Bible in history, of how God is going to restore his presence so that he can be in his presence. But along that, you get a checkpoint in Exodus, where Moses is brought on the Mount Sinai to this similar Eden moment of kind of being up in this set-aside place of being in God's presence and receiving the Torah, the, the teaching of God. And then when he comes down, one thing he comes down with is these plans to build a tabernacle. 
and a tabernacle was going to be a carryable tent in which the presence of God would dwell and abide in. And in that is where they would move into the center of it, which would be the Holy of Holies. Only the high priest who was cleansed and washed and properly robed could enter in to make sacrifices on behalf of the people to continue to have their presence of God be able to be in their presence without killing them because of the sin that was upon them. And sometimes even just because of the sinfulness of the nation, that guy just would get knocked dead and die because of God's holiness. And it wasn't to communicate God is mean, wicked, and angry, but rather he is so holy other than, and we are so broken and sinful and apart from his holiness that just like light inadvertently destroys darkness when it gets flicked on, sometimes his power can overcome us. And so they set it apart of saying, hey, you can't be in my presence fully, so we're going to set it into a tabernacle. And John starts pulling on that idea of like, hey, he is this enfleshed one or this tented one that is covered with human flesh that possesses a light that is not just the creation light that spilled in creating and destroying the darkness, but is the light that spilled forth in the tabernacle, which was his presence. And so... In that, you get the concept of this one who came in, who is the creative power of the universe, puts on flesh. And we talk about this a lot, but I think it's really just hard for us to drill down the idea that the God of the universe had bowel movements and had to sleep and had to eat. And he takes on sickness. I have been sick 42 times since Halloween, it feels like, as all of you have. Um, And the God of the universe got viruses and got better from them and walks through the frailty of humanity all the while possessing the power that could destroy us when fully revealed because of his glory. So much so that he only gives a small sliver of it to John and Peter and in the moment of the transfiguration. But simultaneously, that power who takes on frailty, this idea of Jesus being that power of God who tabernacles amongst us, also reveals what God is like because as you read and reflect and meditate on Jesus of Nazareth, you get the most compelling figure of human history, of someone who sees disease and as he touches it, life bursts forth out of it, who comes near children, who comes near the weak and vulnerable, who comes and says, hey, even this, even poverty, even these broken things, I will vanquish and I will make right someday. Sometimes the Gospels have been displayed as a a word picture to think of. The book of Matthew, namely, but I think you could say this about John as well, is like having the visual picture of a completely snow, ice-covered world. And then this person comes in where every step he takes when he lifts his foot 
grass and flowers and beauty emerge, if only just for a moment, and every person he touches begins to thaw and come back to their fullness of life, if only temporarily. And he says, hey, all of the grass that comes out from my steps and all of the life that comes in people just for a moment, this is a temporary or even just a small part of what is going to be made all places, all people who would come and receive. And he's embodying in human frailty the glory and the beauty and the majesty of a life-giving God. And that's also what is said at the end when in our, intro, our, our outro line where it says that you know, he who was near the Father at his fa- side, or some say, uh, translations will say at the Father's bosom, or some, I think what it's really trying to get at, or on the Father's lap. He who sat on the Father's lap reveals what he's like. And who sits on Father's laps? Sons do. And that's the, another crashing concept he's blurring into the poems. He's saying, hey, here's another theme to harmonize with it. He's this son, the son of the Father who is with God and is God and is of the same essence of who God is and he's the creative wisdom power and he displays his glory because he is the son of the Father. He shares the that the Father has. And that crashes into the concept in 16 and 17 where it talks about, for from his fullness we have received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. He's talking about here like the Torah. Again, we talked about the giving of the tabernacle, and now it's going to say, hey, just the giving of the Torah itself, which we always translate as to the law of God, which is not a bad translation, but I always find a maybe more helpful translation for us is the teaching of God. This is God saying, hey, let me teach you what it's like to be human. Let me teach you what it's like to have life and to be near me. And it says, hey, the Torah came and it revealed God's teaching and his understanding and his wisdom, and it was good. And now there's even a further revelation of who he is in Jesus, who now we've received grace upon grace. There's been grace just spilling out for years in the Torah, and now further grace and a revelation of who God is. So the teaching, the wisdom, the what it is to be human, the, the life-giving, culture-building Torah of God is now fully bursting into life, and this seed is bursting open. And again, getting back to the stuff on John the Baptist in a future week when we'll deal exclusively with him. It then comes home with this idea of receiving him. And I will say this, what it is to receive him is, yes, to believe in him. But as you believe in him, you realize that everything that he is, this wisdom and this teaching and what he is, he's revealing that he is asking you to rearrange your life in a whole new way to reflect the breaking of his kingdom in this world and that his kingdom is the most true reality. He said that's what it is to receive him. Because when you do that, when you receive him, it's not, yes, it is I believe in him, but as I believe in him, 
I rearrange my whole life to reflect the fact that if he's, what he says must be true, what he says must be the wisdom, the logos of life, it must be the presence of God. And so if I align my life to it, not overnight, heaven's sake, but over a lifetime, then that light is the life of men, or the life is the light of men is actually how John says it. Because I'm going to continually conform myself to who he is because it says those who receive him actually become born of him. And wisdom and life and joy spills out of the one who reflects upon who he is. But, and to bring things home a bit with this, I, like you, wrestle with trying to conform myself and receive him fully and walking in darkness. So he says, hey, you can receive him or you can be like those who rejected him and stay and remain in darkness and have your life slowly disintegrate. And for those of us this, who would be with me, who would be brave enough to say, I too struggle with being in the dark and not receiving him fully in the light, this theme of light is probably the most pervasive over the entire prologue. It's funny that we often mark it by the concept of the word word, but he says the word only four times in the rest of the gospel. The word light is going to be developed all throughout the gospel. And it's going to be used even more times in the prologue. And this, it's introducing this battle that happens with light and darkness. In verse 5 it says it. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And again, you've got to remember, the very first line is saying, hey, in the beginning was the Word. It's reflecting back to Genesis 1, and then it's going to talk about the creative power of Genesis. And it's also then that moment of saying, hey, the light has come, and the darkness has not overcome it, is reflecting on how in Genesis, the first thing that comes out of God's creation is, let there be light, and there was light, and then he separates light from dark. And it sets up in that moment this little drama between light and dark that are going to continue for the rest of the chapter. Because every day there's going to be light and creation, and then there's night, and the darkness comes back. But the darkness doesn't fully overcome the light because it comes back the next day, and there's life and creation, and then the darkness comes back. And then there's light and dark and light and dark. However, on the seventh day... Come back for now. I'll grab this though if I need it. No worries. I'll just grab it if it goes out again. So you get light, dark, light, dark, day, night, and then the seventh day he finishes, he rests from his work, and there is no night. As if to say, in the ultimate story, darkness will not get the last word. It will not fully be that which comes last, but rather day comes and darkness doesn't come back eventually. Okay, I know, man, I got to get this in because this is so stinking cool. The entirety of the prologue of John, as I just laid it out, 
four intro verses, six strophes, a concluding verse, is the exact same structure as Genesis 1. A beginning intro, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Six strophes of six days of creation. And then a seventh concluding verse. On the seventh day, God was finished with his work, and he rests. John is mirroring exactly Genesis 1 with his intro, his six strophes. And then he gets to the concluding, kind of concluding statement. And he says, the translation in English actually adds words that are not there just because it's incomplete sentences, and we can't have that. So what in the last line it says, that it says, he who is in the lap of the Father has revealed dot, dot, dot. It doesn't say has revealed him. That is the implication, but it doesn't say that in the original Greek. It just says, hey, he who is in the lap of the Father has revealed. Let's go on. Because it is intentionally inconclusive to say, hey, what has he revealed? He's revealed what I will lay out in the next 20 chapters. I can't just tell you how God is in one little intro poem, but I want you to take this forward and now to turn and flip the page and continue to read. All of what I'm going to reveal is the God that we have not seen, but yet he has revealed. And he does it for that reason, but he also does it for this reason. At the moment of the crucifixion in John, Jesus says, it is finished. And the Greek word he uses for finished is the corresponding word in Hebrew to the last line of Genesis when it said, on the seventh day, God finished his work and rested. In the prologue, he's tying it to the idea of there will be light and darkness will fight back. And more light will come and darkness will push back. But in the day, just as in the seventh day, when day comes and night does not come back, it doesn't get the last word. Similarly, I'm pointing to that he has revealed the one who on the cross says it is finished. And he sits down because he's completed the work. Because he defeats death and sin. And I know sometimes I just take that like you take that. I'm like, okay, that's great. He defeated death and sin, but I still wrestle with temptation and struggle, and I cannot sometimes fight the darkness in my own heart. But for the person, for the man, the woman who spends a lifetime continuing to hold fast to the idea that, no, he has defeated sin, and for me to continually try to hold fast to receive him means that he has continually created me who has been born of him. And a lifetime of continuing to reflect of, no, I have been not born of death. Yes, I was, but now I've been born of him in life. And I can continue to slowly but surely have the scales from my eyes fall off and see that these other things that I continue to try to squeeze life at are bankrupt and have only death in them. And it doesn't, again, happen overnight, but it happens of a lifetime of continuing to idea that he has finished death and sin and that I have been born of him and as I similar to my son who that identity of you are not bad you are not broken you're my son and with you I'm well pleased 
I slowly, not in a moment, sometimes it bounces off, but over time, over a lifetime, it shapes my identity, who is one who is born his son or his daughter and receives the life, which is the light of men. Let's pray. Father God, I pray for as we reflect over months over who is this man that John knew intimately as a friend and also worshipped as his God. I pray that we would, as we reflect today, that that would continue to cast an identity over us, that we are not those who are darkness gets the last word, but rather day comes and darkness night does not come back eventually. And so we, similar to the pattern of Genesis 1 or John 1, have lives that often reflect the light coming and the darkness coming back and the light coming and the darkness coming back, that as we continue to be of not just people who receive him in a moment, but have a lifetime of coming back, receiving him, and having the identity of those who have died to sin and have been born into life, spoken over us until it becomes real, becomes lived out in our lives and in our church. But I pray that this time of reflecting on the life and the finishing work of Jesus would be a part of resetting that identity and resetting that trajectory for us again and again. Because we are receiving you, yes, we often have a story of receiving you first. But I, like my brothers and sisters here, need to receive you afresh in 2023, need to receive you afresh week after week after week as the dark comes, but your finishing work speaks of the day where it pushes fully out of our life continually over the years that we live and then fully one day when your kingdom is fully realized. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.